Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 33 through 36. Romans 3, or Romans 11, 33 through 36. Remember, as I read and as you listen and follow along, this is the word of God. Romans eleven thirty three. 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we have been reminded, if nothing else, over these last days of our utter dependence on you. Not only are we dependent on you for our very being and for life and breath and every good gift and our salvation, but we are dependent on you this evening as we open your word. We would ask you that your spirit might be at work in our midst, that that your spirit might take your living word and apply it to our hearts, that you would use your word, to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that you would teach us, you would train us, you would rebuke us, you would thoroughly equip us for every good work. Father, we ask this in dependence on you, but we ask it for the glory of your Son, and we ask it in your Son's name. Amen. There's something very appropriate about this conference and this subject matter, particularly for the work we're doing at Greenville Seminary. Samuel Miller, when he was writing on the seminary and what makes a seminary distinctive, said that the genius, the true genius of the seminary is to merge together a, a deep study, academic study of the things of God and a growth in personal piety. That is to say, he understood that that study and reflection on the deep things of God, as, as intellectually rigorous as that is and must be, is meant to draw our hearts to the Savior and cause us to lift our voices in praise. You probably know B.B. Warfield's Uh, work, the religious life of theological students. We give this to every incoming student at the seminary, and Warfield has this very famous section where he says, sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. And then Warfield says this, what is the appropriate response? Then 10 hours over your books on your knees. Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books or feel that you must leave your books in order to turn to God? There is something about studying the attributes of God in an environment like this from the kind of men who've been instructing us that ought to, and I think does, draw us to praise God. And of course, the Apostle Paul didn't miss this. 
The Apostle Paul didn't miss this union of, of reflection on the deep things, the stretching things, and worship of the triune God. Have you noticed how many of the passages we have looked at, even in these last few days, that are not simply outlining truths about God, but are actually erupting in praise for the God of whom they speak? And this, this text... Romans eleven thirty three through 36 does just that. Charles Hodge said, few passages, even in the scriptures, are to be compared with this. You, know, you rarely find Greek grammarians who are effusive in their praise of a particular text. But I can't help but notice that virtually every commentary you turn to, when you look at these verses and when you see what the commentator says about these verses, every commentator remarks on the fact that this is, this is a sublime text where the Apostle Paul is, as it were, erupting in praise. One very recent commentator on the Greek text, said, Oh, the O oh at the beginning, in verse 33, is a response of overwhelming wonder, heartfelt gratitude, and reverent awe, and it functions to introduce a matter that goes far beyond human comprehension. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, puts it this way. He says that Paul, in this text, finds that whenever he stands back and looks at what God has done, language fails him. He is forced to use superlatives. And then he still feels he has not quite said it. Lloyd-Jones goes on to liken the first phrase in this text to Paul saying, Oh, what immensity, what profundity, what a glorious thing this is. As we have to ask ourselves, why is Paul so effusive in his language of praise? Why is, why is Paul seemingly almost lacking the words to express what he's describing, what he's reflecting on under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What is it about God that causes him to say, oh, the depth? And the answer, of course, is right there in verse 33. What Paul is reflecting on is the attribute of God known as God's wisdom. You notice he combines wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are, are combined, properly so. But what this most sublime passage addresses is the wisdom of God. Now, it, it's not something that was just on Paul's mind in this text. I'm sure you have realized this when you reach the end of the book of Romans. The very last thing that Paul says about God in this most significant letter to the Christian church is he ends the letter by referring to God as the only wise God. And here at this climactic moment, that is the attribute of God to which he turns our attention. That is the attribute of God that causes him to say, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now I mentioned in verse 33 that 
wisdom and knowledge are connected together and that that's entirely appropriate that they be connected together. And, and that, that's because, of course, in the scriptures, when the Bible talks about real wisdom, and certainly when the Bible talks about the wisdom of God, which is in some ways very different from human wisdom, but in other ways there is a parallel there. But when, when the Bible talks about wisdom in a correct sense, it is always based on a body of knowledge. In other words, you don't have wisdom without actually knowing something. Oftentimes today, we, we tend to separate these things out. We want to emphasize what wisdom is, and we almost emphasize what wisdom is at the exclusion of knowledge. But the Bible, of course, doesn't do that. And if you look at these great illustrations of wisdom, you can see that what we think of as knowledge is embedded in them. Uh, we might think, for instance, of 1 Kings 4, where Solomon's wisdom is described. And the way in which Solomon's wisdom is described is vast and broad. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east, etc. And when, then it goes on to describe that wisdom. And it says, he, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. And all the peoples of the nations came to hear him the wisdom of Solomon. And that's a, that's a good text for us to remember because what we see there is Solomon's wisdom was not narrowly concentrated on one slice of life. No, Solomon's wisdom was, was combined with a deep knowledge of all kinds of things in creation, trees and animals and songs and poetry and all the, all the stuff of life. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. Now, we might ask the question, what's the context? What is it that causes Paul at this moment to reflect in, in, in such a remarkable way on God's wisdom and knowledge? Well, commentators are somewhat divided about this. Some commentators think that what Paul is particularly responding to is what he's just addressed in Romans 9 through 11 where he addresses God's plans in redemptive history and God's work in Israel and God's work in and through his son the Lord Jesus Christ and that at the end of that at the end of that explanation of of redemptive history that Paul gives that that's that's what causes Paul to explode in this kind of praise. Uh, other commentators think that perhaps it's, it's everything that's contained in the book of Romans. The, the wisdom of God in justification, the wisdom of God in sanctification, the wisdom of God in human history. And one commentator says about this, I would say this, if at this point you are not standing in awe of the depth of the riches of God's manifold wisdom in salvation, as Paul was, you have not even begun to understand the first 11 chapters of this letter. Well, I would say this, that in one sense, what precisely Paul is responding to, whether it's the narrower argument about redemptive history or whether it's the, the broader argument of the book of Romans up to this point, the fact of the matter is Paul goes beyond any of those more narrow concerns because whatever it is that drives him, to his expression in verse 33. The fact is he's making a statement that applies to everything that God does. How unsearchable are his judgments 
and inscrutable his ways. And Paul's not simply applying that narrowly. He's applying it in the broadest possible way. The first thing then that we need to address is that expression at the beginning that deals with the depth of the riches of God's wisdom. What we see is that the Apostle Paul, after expressing himself at the beginning of verse 33, actually weaves together at least three different passages. And these are actually passages that we've turned to over these last days, so they may be familiar to you. He, he's weaving together, apparently, the teaching of Job chapter 9 and Isaiah 40 and Job 35, and the two metaphors that he puts in front of us in order for us to understand how these fit together and how these are expressions of the wisdom of God. The two metaphors that he uses are depth and riches. So let's take these in order, as Paul does. Oh, the depth, Paul says. You might remember a time in your life where you've been on top of a very tall building or you've been looking into a canyon from a mountain and you've been struck by how, how deep it all is. Perhaps you've visited the Grand Canyon or, 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 or perhaps you might think of this in terms of the depth of the ocean. Dr. Dolezal very helpfully gave us a, a little lesson in maritime engineering in the first session about the way in which depth is measured or depth was measured. You know, that the deepest part of our ocean, if you, if you took Mount Everest and you flipped it over and you were, you were able to put it in the deepest part of the ocean, there'd still be a mile of water covering the top of Mount Everest. We can barely reach it. We can, we can barely understand it. It's unfathomable. And Paul is speaking of something that is even greater in its depth than that. Oh, the depth, he says, of the wisdom of God. Well, let's consider the other metaphor. He mentions depth in verse 33, but he also combines that with this notion of great riches. You know, uh, the, the, the first billionaire in the recorded history, the first billionaire in the United States was John D. Rockefeller. It was, it was estimated that when Rockefeller was at the, the height of his wealth, he he controlled 2%, 2% of all the wealth in the United States. That would be today like someone having something like 10 or 11 uh, trillion dollars, something like that. I mean, it's just a, an unbelievable number, but, but at least it could be counted. If you go back a little further in history and look at some of the people who are considered by historians as the very, very wealthiest Individuals, you look at Mansa Musa in the 14th century, this African king who controlled the salt trade and controlled the spices and the gold. And some historians say that's the richest man to ever live. What what they always say when when exploring the amount of wealth that he controlled is they say it's incalculable. It, It could not be counted. It was such a great amount of wealth that it was beyond tracing out. You see how the Apostle Paul takes this notion of depth and riches 
and uses that kind of language. It is unsearchable and inscrutable. By this point in the conference, I hope you're familiar with the fact that very often when the Bible is speaking of God, it uses these words that are, have a negative prefix, this alpha privative at the beginning. And these two words fall into that category. God's wisdom, the, the, the depth of the riches of God's wisdom, it, it is actually something that cannot be searched out. You, you, can't, you can't find it. You can't get to the end of it. You can't really entirely grasp it. And that's the, that's the meaning of the second word in particular. It's not only that you can't search it out, but even if you could search it out, you couldn't comprehend it. The depth of the riches of the wisdom of God, Paul says, are unsearchable and inscrutable by human beings. The question we might be asking at this point is, isn't that a little hyperbolic? We're talking about the wisdom of God. We can, we can say things about the wisdom of God. The Bible tells us things about the wisdom of God. Is it appropriate for Paul to say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God? You, you can't search it out. And, and, and if you could search it out, you couldn't, you couldn't comprehend it. Well, I don't think it is at all hyperbolic of the Apostle Paul to say this. In fact, according to many theologians, Charles Hodge, among them, Hodge says, all the works of God, everything you could list of what God has done, all those works display this, the wisdom of God. In other words, everything God has created everything he has done in redemptive history, everything he has done in your life, all of it displays this attribute. Other attributes are displayed as well, but this attribute is displayed in all the works of God. They all display his wisdom. Let's consider that for a moment. How do the works of God display the wisdom of God? Well, first we might turn to creation itself. All the works of God declare his wisdom. That would certainly include God's work in creation. And lo and behold, when we turn to the Bible, that's exactly what the scriptures tell us about the work of God in creation. Psalm 104.24 says this, In wisdom, God made all his works. So everything you read, everything you study, everything you consider about the created order, if nothing else, ought to point you to the wisdom of God, to his wisdom. Not merely his power, not merely his purposefulness, although all those things are combined in his wisdom, but the wisdom of God. Jeremiah says much the same thing, that the Lord established the world by his wisdom. Proverbs 8, perhaps one of the great chapters in the Old Testament to teach us about the uh, Trinitarian relations. Uh, the, the, in fact, in, in the early church, among the church fathers, Proverbs 8 was, was one of the most commented on pa- uh, passages in all the Bible. 
in the midst of Christological controversy. What is Proverbs 8 about? Well, Proverbs 8 is about how, how God, by his wisdom, and they recognized that the wisdom of God there was personified in Christ, who is called the wisdom of God, but, but the wisdom of God brought forth all the works of God. So we look at creation and we see that all of it, from the very beginning, shows us the wisdom of our God. And think about that for a minute. Think about even your own observations of creation. Think about the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, think of approximately 100,000 light years across it. The universe, uh, who knows? Maybe astronomers would tell us 50 million light years. Think about the necessary conditions for life on this planet. Uh, think about all the, the details of creation that make life possible and the vastness of the universe out there. Uh, think about all the, the species of animals that exist on the earth. Uh, scientists say 8.7 million species of animals on earth today, and we've, we've only labeled about 2 million of them. This is vast, and all the works of God in creation point us to his wisdom. Or perhaps you might even want to look at yourself a little more personal than looking at the stars or looking at the number of animals or looking at the planet. I was recently reading an article about the human foot. Did you know that your foot has about 25% of all the body's bones. It has, it has three arches, but unlike an arch that might hold up a building, your, your foot actually has dynamic arches that move, and that's combined with tendons that, that pull the bones together when you move and allow them to relax when you're sitting down. It's called a windless design. That, that's just your foot. I haven't even considered that today. All of it displays the wisdom of God. We might move from creation and look at God's work in redemptive history. I'm so grateful for Dr. McGraw's uh, masterful exposition last evening about the wisdom of God displayed in the work of Jesus Christ. We were reminded last night that the preaching of Jesus Christ was, for Paul, the answer to the problems in the Corinthian church. But, but think about that for a second, because what we know about the first century is that the cross was a scandal to those in the first century. There's a wonderful little book written by a, unfortunately, very liberal theologian, Martin Hengel, uh, the University of Tübingen, called Crucifixion in the Ancient World. And what he does is he tries to uh, survey all the, the ancient texts that talk about crucifixion prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he finds is that without fail, there's a kind of distance that immediately enters in when the authors begin to start to talk about crucifixion. They use all kinds of euphemisms. They keep it at arm's length. In other words, it wasn't something that they even wanted to deal with. It was that shameful. And yet Paul says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And then he goes on to say that this preaching of Christ crucified 
is a way in which God destroys the wisdom of the wise. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That means that the very act of preaching the gospel and the message of the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, displays the wisdom of God in a way that undermines and even demolishes human wisdom. So when we turn our attention even to the simple preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, what do we see? Well, we see the same thing as when we look at creation. We see the wisdom of God on display. And if you're a Christian, I trust you know this because... Paul goes on in that same argument to say to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, this is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then he adds, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. This work in redemption as a display of God's wisdom gets picked up on as God works through the church of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 3.10 Paul says that the work of God in saving Jews and Gentiles and bringing them together through the gospel was, according to Paul, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's wisdom is displayed in creation, and God's wisdom is displayed in redemption. If you are in Christ... God's wisdom is displayed in bringing you from death to life through the proclamation of the cross. It's displayed in the fact that now Christ is known by you to be the wisdom of God. And you're part of Christ's body, the church, which is itself a display of God's wisdom. It's all a display of the great wisdom of God. Stephen Charnock says this about the display of God's wisdom in redemption. How mysterious is it that the Son of God should bow down to death on a cross for a satisfaction of justice and rise triumphantly out of grace as a declaration that justice was contented and satisfied. What capacity, he goes on to say, is able to measure the miracles of that Wisdom found in the whole draft and scheme of the gospel, doth it not merit then to be the object of our daily meditation? So as you reflect on the benefits of Christ's death for you, as you wake up and remember that wonderful promise, your mercies are new every morning, your faithfulness is great, as you come to God in prayer through Jesus Christ and reflect on the salvation that is yours. Oh, we reflect on the benefits of salvation. But it is true, isn't it? This merits to be the object of daily meditation. What capacity is able to measure the miracles of that wisdom? Or we might turn and consider God's work of providence. God works in creation. God 
has worked in redemption. All of this points us to the wisdom of God. But what about the wisdom of God in providence? Well, God's wisdom is on full display in his ordering of all things. You know, of course, what Confession of Faith chapter 5 says, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. And here's why. To the praise of of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Well, that's not accidental. He understood that the Bible teaches that as God orders all things in your life, as God orders all things in history, as God orders all things in the world, that is, that is to the end that his wisdom would be praised. Because it is, he is ordering all these things and governing all these things by his most wise providence. We see this again and again in the scriptures, don't we? From these great events to these small little details. I was reading recently in Genesis chapter 37, this, this text which records for us Joseph being sold by his brothers into Egypt. It's very interesting to see The details in the text. And I think about the providence of God. The timing in that text really is extraordinary. Just when the brothers who had thrown Joseph into the well sit down to eat. They're, They're sitting down to their meal. They've just disposed of their brother. He's in the well. It says, just then they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. And that allows Judah if you remember, to to make a speech to his brothers saying, let's not kill him after all. He's down in the well. Let's not kill him. We we see those Ishmaelites, and and what what if we sell him to them? And then, just as Judah convinced them, the text says in Genesis 37, then, just then, Midianite traders passed by, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Think about all the things that could have happened as the Ishmaelites, those Midianite traders, were preparing to leave. Have you ever gotten ready to go on vacation and you set a firm time? We're going to leave by 7 a.m. this time. And then 7 rolls around and things are getting packed and all kinds of last-minute details come into play. And you're leaving the drive and you're, oh, I haven't shut off the stove. And, and, and you just look at it and, and you sort of throw up your hands at a certain point. I, I can't control when we leave the house. I, I'm resigned to that. But think about this. These, these, these Midianite traders, uh, God in his providence orchestrated it such that they left at just the right time and they faced just the perfect number of obstacles or, or had a, a perfectly easy journey and, and they, they had everything they needed at the right time and, and maybe there were some delays along the way and they had no idea why all of this was happening and we don't have an idea of entirely why it was happening but we know one thing it was so that they would appear on the horizon 
just as Joseph got thrown in the well, and then they would actually arrive just after Judah had made his speech so that his brothers and his brothers had agreed to not kill Joseph, and then they could sell him into slavery in Egypt, and on and on redemptive history goes from there. The wonder of God's providence. We know that this is true on a national scale. Psalmist says in Psalm 33, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. You know, of course, what Paul has said in Romans 8, these very precious words, that in all God's dealings with him, that everything in his life, all the details, all the plans, all the plans that seem to be thwarted, and all of it, he's, he's confident, he knows that God is working out good purposes on behalf of those who love him and who are called to him. I wonder if you believe that, let alone whether or not you've thought about it in terms of the wisdom of God. Do, do you believe that the events and circumstances of your life are the demonstration of God's wisdom and good purpose? We often can't see why God uses particular means to accomplish his purposes. But we can be confident based on scripture that he always uses the best means for the best end, the outcome of all the events and difficulties for the believer is the believer's good and the glory of God. Look at your own life. Even think about the contingencies necessary for you to be here in this place on this evening. All the things from the very beginning of your life till now that that fell into place just so. All of this is is under the the, the sovereignty of God. It's, It's a work of God's providence in your life. And that's meant to point you to the wisdom of God. So we look at creation. We look at redemptive history. We look at God's work in providence on a global scale, on a personal scale. And what we're meant to see is the wisdom of God on display. I want to pause and ask a question right now. Do you know this God of wisdom at all? Have you done business with the one whom the Bible calls the only wise God? Do you know this one of whom it is said wisdom and might are his? The New Testament very frequently describes salvation as a knowledge of God. Paul in Galatians 4 says that Christians are ones who have come to know God or, or rather to be known by him. And do you know the only wise God? Let me put it to you another way. This only wise God who has a depth of riches and wisdom has revealed himself, the Bible tells us, in his Son, who is the wisdom of God. The Bible says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you know that God? Through that one who is called the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
What about this? If you do know this, God, when it comes to your own life, is the wisdom of God dominant in your thinking? Can you say what Job says when he is suffering? With God are wisdom and might. You remember at the very center of that profound book in Job chapter 28, it's about the search for wisdom. We read in that book, in the midst of Job's suffering, we read that at the heart of it all is this great mystery that wisdom is such a precious and valuable thing. Where can it be found? And then Job ends by saying, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Would you say that as well? You know the God of wisdom. You trust in the God of wisdom. You embrace wisdom through the fear of the Lord. If you know this God, do you seek him? For wisdom, or do you go to other sources first? Love that story that we find in 2 Kings 5 of Naaman the Syrian. You remember this story of Naaman? Naaman was this great man in Syria, only he had a problem, and that was he, he had this skin disease. And he hears about the prophet of God, and, and, he, and he sends a message to the king and, and asks, uh, could, is it possible that the prophet that I've heard about could, could, could perhaps heal me? And, 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 and he, he's, he receives a message back that what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to bathe himself in the Jordan River and that God would heal him as he does that. And Naaman, it says, was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and, and cure the leper. And he says, oh, I have all these other better rivers. The rivers of Damascus are much better than the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? But he goes away in a rage, but he's, he's, not, he's not healed, of course. The servants then come to him and say, my father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? As he actually said to you, wash and be clean, he went down, he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And I bring this up because while on the one hand we declare that we serve and know the only wise God, it would appear in our lives as if we will seek almost any other source of wisdom first and believe almost any source of so-called wisdom before turning to the wisdom of God. Charnock again comments on this. He says this, No man needs so much the advice of another man as all men need the counsel and assistance of God. And then he uses this language from 2 Kings 5. It is best for us to go to the fountain, not content ourselves with the streams, to beg advice from a wisdom that is infinite and infallible rather than from that which is finite and fallible. If you know the God of wisdom, if you believe that God's wisdom is displayed in creation, displayed in redemption, displayed in providence... Is it his wisdom that you seek first? Well, continuing in this text that's before us, we see that the apostle goes even deeper in his statement on God's wisdom. Because not only does he declare 
the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God displayed in all these ways. But, but fundamentally, the next point that he makes, beginning in verse 34, is God not only has depths of riches of wisdom beyond our searching out and beyond our comprehending, but God's wisdom is independent. Now, this is where there is a breakdown between our understanding of human wisdom and the Bible's understanding of the wisdom of God. Because when you look at the scriptures and you see what they say about human wisdom, what you see immediately is that we are called to grow in wisdom and gain wisdom and seek wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 4 says this, The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. And then the Proverbs go on, don't they? And describe the way in which we grow in wisdom, the way in which we gain wisdom. Listen to advice and accept instruction, Proverbs 19, that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 1 begins by saying this is to know wisdom and to understand it. And so we see all these things in the Proverbs that we're to pursue in order to grow in wisdom. We're to fear God. We're to talk to godly people. We're to walk with those who are wise. We're to observe the wise and the foolish. In fact, at one point the Proverbs say, sell everything you have to get wisdom. But see, God's wisdom is entirely different from that. Because God does not grow in wisdom. God is himself all wise. Herman Boving puts it this way, God is exclusively from himself. Not in the sense of being self-caused, but being from eternity to eternity who he is. Being, not becoming. In other words, we need to grow in wisdom. In fact, we're commanded to grow in wisdom. In fact, we, we must be growing in wisdom. But, but God, God is not in an act of becoming more wise. He's not getting greater wisdom. No, God is the all-wise God. A.W. Pink summarizes verses 34 and 35, and I think summarizes them well when he says this. He gives to all, but he is enriched by none. This all-wise God with depths of riches of wisdom beyond our comprehension has a wisdom that is independent from us. The Bible, as you know, is full of teaching about God's self-sufficiency, God's independence. Who has first given to me that I should repay him, says the Lord. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. In Acts 17, Paul when he's preaching on Mars Hill, said he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Because he actually gives to mankind life and breath and everything. Jesus says in John 5, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. We've been reminded from Isaiah 40, there's no man who counsels God, that God goes to for advice. Because God's not in need of this. He is the all-wise God. He has perfect 
knowledge, and he applies that perfect knowledge to the end of the good of his people and his ultimate glory. He's independent in all these ways. He's independent in his power. He's independent in his love. He's independent in his will. He gives to all, but is enriched by none. Of course, we see this on display, even as God reveals himself in his name. Again, this was mentioned earlier in the conference, and rightly so, but we can stop and give some attention to the way in which God reveals himself to Moses as, I am. Moses is not sufficient, but God is all sufficient. He needs nothing and no one. He takes from no one. He is the God of all blessing, the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes, the one in whom all people live and move and have their being, the the all-wise God. He alone has all essence, while all other things have only some small part of essence. I want to turn your attention to the way in which Paul caps this in verse 36, because Paul doesn't simply declare that God is enriched by none, that his wisdom is independent. He's not growing in wisdom. He is the all-wise God. And so he can say, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And the answer, of course, is no one. Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. From him and through him and to him are, did you notice this? Are all things, Paul says. The fact that God is the source from And the sustenance through and the end too is true of all things. It's not just true of your life, although it is true of your life. The way in which God has acted in your life providentially in ordering your steps is a reflection of his wisdom. The the way in which he's worked in history, the way in which he works in redemptive history, all these things point to the wisdom of God. But it's not just in those kinds of things. It's in all things that God's wisdom is displayed. And so we return to that quote from Charles Hodge. The wisdom of God is displayed in all his works. That's how comprehensive Paul's language is here. St. Augustine, at the beginning of Confessions, very famously and rightly said, we are made for thee, he's praying to the Lord. We are made for thee. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And that's absolutely true. But Paul says that's not just true of our hearts. That's true of all things. From him, through him, to him are all things. The God who is pure act, who is self-sufficient, independent, the great I am... No one can know his mind. He owes no man anything. From him, through him, and to him are all things, Paul says. And you can probably detect where this is going. Because after addressing the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God and showing how that wisdom is independent of any creature, he then has this phrase at the end, perhaps the third heading, were we seeking to divide this, the glory of God's wisdom? 
You know, I've mentioned now twice that quote from Charles Hodge, all the works of God declare his wisdom. But I want to read you the full context. The full context is this. He says, all the works of God declare his wisdom. They show from the minutest to the greatest, the most wonderful adaption of means to accomplish the high end of the good of his creatures and the manifestation of his own glory. See, this is really where a study of the wisdom of God takes us. The wisdom of God is God adapting all the means, his infinite and perfect knowledge, to accomplish the high end of the good of his creatures and the manifestation of his own glory. I want to just start by reflecting briefly on the fact that God's wisdom is is adapting his perfect knowledge for the good of his creatures. How how many people do you have in your life, probably no one, who adapt everything that they do for your good? And and, and, and who, who of you could say, that you even remotely approximate that in any relationship you have. And yet the wisdom of God adapts his knowledge to the high end of the good of his creatures. But it's not just the good of his creatures, of course, because the apostle couldn't merely say that, but the manifestation of his own glory is the point of all of it. God is God all wise. He, he offers wisdom to those who ask that it may redound to his own glory. So that as, as we receive wisdom from God and as we grow in wisdom following the word of God, that, that redounds to the glory of God and, and to our good. He He sends forth Christ, the wisdom of God, to bring salvation that is foolishness to the world, that he might receive glory and that his wisdom might be on perfect display. We we, we say this at the beginning of our catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, Jesus in John 17 focused at the end of his earthly ministry on on that one objective, which is the objective that is accomplished by the wisdom of God. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Bible teaches that as we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is going to lead us to the conclusion, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. That's how Peter puts it. The gift of the Holy Spirit that the Lord gives to his children, gives to his church, is according to Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glory. See, when we begin to grasp the wisdom of God, and we look at creation and its complexity and beauty and manifold splendor, 
You have to say this, the works of God display his wisdom to the high end of the manifestation of his glory. When you look at redemption and see the wisdom of God on display in Christ, and the wisdom of God in using the foolishness of the gospel, the preaching of the cross, it's all to God's glory. When you look at your own life in your calmer moments under the influence of God's word, and you say to yourself, I could not have orchestrated any of this. It is God's wisdom on display for the good of those who are his children, which is also for his glory. This God is independent. He gives to all but is enriched by none. Therefore, it all comes back to his own glory. The most profound thing we can say about the wisdom of God is that it displays the glory of God. And you know you have begun to scratch the surface of the purpose of history and the purpose of providence in your life, the purpose of creation, the purpose of redemption. When you, when you yourself do what Paul does here and say, to him be the glory forever, amen. And even now, as you do that, your life can be reordered by the wisdom of God. And, and, and here's what it will look like. It will look like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is a manifestation of his wisdom. That is his wisdom working itself out in your life from the mundane details to the things we consider most important. Your work can be a reflection of God's glory and a display of God's wisdom. Your role as a husband or a wife, using the wisdom that God provides to the glory of God. Your understanding of your children and what you aspire to for them, what you pray for for them. That God's wisdom would be manifested in their life to his glory. It's how you approach your ministry as a whole. If you're a minister of the gospel, I'm, I'm, I'm proclaiming something that is foolishness to the world, but is the display of the wisdom of God, and that's to his glory. As you suffer, you know that, that the all-wise God is at work using his perfect knowledge to the end of the good of his creatures and his glory. That's why the Apostle Paul can reflect on suffering in Romans 8 and, and be so moved by his understanding of God's wisdom that he can say that these things are preparing in him an, an eternal weight of glory. They're small things in comparison with the glory of God and the wisdom of God which is on display. Even as you face your death, you remember when in John's gospel, Jesus speaks to Peter about his death and John gives that little note uh, just explaining what Jesus just said. And the way he puts it is wonderful. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Because in the wisdom of God, even the way Peter died was for the glory of God. 
The wisdom of God is that perfection of God whereby he applies his knowledge to the attainment of his ends in the way that glorifies him most. Whatever that means for you as an individual. All the things that happen in your life, the good, the painful, the mysterious, are orchestrated by an all-wise God to the end that when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. To the end that those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. To the end that he will bring glory to himself when the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom and the mourning are comforted and the meek inherit the earth and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled and the merciful will see mercy and the pure in heart will see God. To the end that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The the realization of the chief end of man, which is God's glory, coalesces with the chief objective of God's wisdom, which is also God's glory. Is it any wonder, then, that when Paul considers the attributes of God, when Paul pauses for a moment to consider just the wisdom of God, He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. And he ends by saying to him, be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how unsearchable are your judgments and unfathomable your ways. Who has known your mind? None of us has given to you that we might be repaid. And yet, Father... In your infinite and matchless wisdom, you have and are working all things out from creation to redemption to the events of our lives for our good and your glory. And so, Father, in light of that, we praise you. And in light of that, we ask that you might continue to glorify yourself in our lives, trusting in your wisdom. And we ask this in the name of the one who is wisdom from you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.